0: Welcome to the Improvcast, the more occasional and opportunistic offshoot to of the Provcast, the Foreign Policy Podcast to Providence, a journal of Christianity and American Foreign Policy co-published by the Institute on Religion and Democracy and the Philos Project. I am Mark Levecki. I am the managing editor of Providence and last month I had the singular opportunity to sit down with Bing West. Among much else, Bing has been a Marine Corps officer leading men in combat in infantry, combined action, and force recon units during the Vietnam War. He has been an assistant secretary of defense, and he is a writer. He has published around a dozen or so books, mostly written from the point of view of the warfighter in Vietnam, and during his embeds in Iraq and Afghanistan among U.S. troops. We sat down prior to Bing's participation in a conference at Johns Hopkins SICE School of Advanced International Studies, to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Tet Offensive. Our discussion ranged from Bing's writing to the state of the military-civilian divide in America, to the Tet Offensive itself, to the Ken Burns and Lynn Novick's The Vietnam War series, and much else. Bing, thank you for joining me. Um, it is uh, an absolute pleasure to meet you. I've, I haven't read everything you've, you've written, but I've read much um, and a uh, great admirer of your work. Um, you're described as a writer, among other things, you're described as a writer of military issues, war fighting, counterinsurgency, uh, but very clearly not solely from a scholar's perspective, Other there is that uh, you're a practitioner. And this comes through in a multitude of ways, but one of the things that I find valuable about your books, not having experienced combat myself, is that you write from the boots on the ground perspective. Um, the men are important to you. You know their names, you tell us their names, you tell us their stories why 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 have you found your why is this worthy of your life your attention what uh, what are you up to
1: here predestination okay <laughs> I was born in 1940 so my two uncles after Pearl Harbor joined the Marine Corps and went off to fight and my father was the town doctor in Dorchester Massachusetts and he had a three-story house so that the top house was the the um, if you will the set aside just for the Dorgan team which was the baseball team and that's their clubhouse but when they all joined the Marines and they came back from Guadalcanal they couldn't explain to their parents mm. what had happened to them right. so they all went back up to the clubhouse when they come back And I then was just two, and my mother was expecting another child. So she thought, well, these are my brothers. Uh, They can be the babysitters. So I spent from 1942 to 1947 five years growing up in the clubhouse with these Marines who passed me on from group to group. when they come back from Iwo Jima, from Okinawa. And my mother suspected something was going on up there when I was five and I had a blanket. And she wanted to cure me of walking around with a blanket all the time. And she said, you should do something for the war effort. And with that, I threw the blanket out the window and said, that's for those dirty yellow baskets. <laughs> baskets. And at, at that particular point, she thought I had gone off the tracks. And when I graduated from, from college and I was supposed to go to Columbia Law School, I went down to South Station and across the street it said Marine Corps Recruiting. I walked in and joined up, never went to law school and I came home with my bag and my mother took one like me and said, you joined the Marines, didn't you? So it was predestination. It you know. literally was. And there was in me always a, a desire to write as well. Mm-hmm. That was mm-hmm. there. So you put those two things together and then I was a grunt, went off and fought, just like my uncles had fought. My son then followed me, he was Force recon, mm-hmm. I was Force recon. Mm-hmm. So it was just in my blood. That's fantastic. Uh, one of your earliest books is *The Village*.
0: Um, I found it extraordinary. It's a, very roughly about a combined action platoon in Vietnam and what's been called the Village Wars. Um, can you briefly just describe the book, um, and, and are there lessons for today's counterinsurgency operations?
1: Uh-huh. Well, I don't know, could be first, briefly, uh huh. Well, first, back in 1966. I was sometimes used, I was a grunt, uh, Marine captain, by the generals, and they'd send me to different battles in order then to write them up so that people would have an understanding of what the fight was about. And this one colonel said, Bing, I'm sending you down to this village. I have 12 Marines in this village, and they're fighting every night, and we mm-hmm. can't figure out what's going on. And I went down, and this squad, 12 Marines, had been sent in among 5,000 Vietnamese in order to stop rocket attacks against the airfield. And every night when we go out, we get into a fight. And this went on night after night after night. And it took me a long time, but I finally came back and I said, General, this this is a fight for the people that has become a feud between the Viet Cong who are determined that 12 Americans can't come into a village and <laughs> change things. And... It went on for ooh, 485 days or something. We were there, and so in the end, I tried to write the story of gradually how these 12 Marines were embedded into into the Vietnamese society in a way we never could in a Muslim area. Never in Iraq or Afghanistan could right. you do the same thing right. because of the of the, of the religion making mm-hmm. the huge difference. Mm-hmm. Um, when I went back to the village, I, I've been back there twice, when I went back to the village uh, several years ago, and they, they called me uh, elder brother, which was kind of them, and, and I said to my interpreter, who is a wonderful guy who went to Yale, Charlie Benoit, I said, Charlie, this is amazing, they still remember. Hmm. And Charlie said, what's so amazing about that? He said, look at them. He said, every one of them has a half acre of rice, and that's all they do is pick up rice stocks all day long for, the, for their entire lives, And we were here for a year. Don't you think you'd remember us too? (laughs) That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah,
0: very good. Um, In the intro to at least the paperback version that I have, Jim Schlesinger uh, said this. He said, the ultimate failure of the Viet Cong and the village war meant that Hanoi could only triumph through direct invasion as they did in 1975 when they finally destroyed the government of South Vietnam. Um, I'm wondering if, there's, uh, if there are connections between the failure in the village wars and the subject of today's conference later on, which is the Tet Defensive. And so let's, let's turn to the Tet Offensive. The conference today is called Lessons for the Campaign After 50 Years. Uh, just some background to our, our listeners, we're going to have a range. Some of our listeners uh, will know firsthand what it is to hump in the jungles of Vietnam. Uh, the other bit of our listeners will think jungle humping is something vulgar and something that we talk about in <laughs> flight right. company, right? So what's the background? What was Tet? Why is it significant to observe its anniversary?
1: Well, it, 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 Tet was like our Christmas, the annual holiday for the no- Vietnamese at the beginning of February. And in February of 68, the Lao Dong Party that comprised the government of North Vietnam and the Viet Cong in the South they made this terrible mistake. They honestly believed their own rhetoric that yeah. that the people would rise up if they simply rushed into the cities and said, here we are. So they, they launched this massive attack all, all, across all of South Vietnam. Um, and with well, the people, common sense, they ran away. <laughs> they didn't want anything to do with like this. Um, and the... Viet Cong were at the forefront in the attack, and they were pretty much slaughtered before it was over because they didn't know how to fight in cities. They mm-hmm. were, It was really dumb of what they did. But on the other hand, in the United States, it broke our spirit because the press had turned against the war and right. said, this illustrates that we've lost, when actually... Um, if our generals had, had been shrewder, it would have been the crushing blow to the north. But we allowed the victory to slip through our fingers. Um, the victory of the Tet Offensive the, itself. Vi- okay. Well, it really was. A, a objectively, when yeah. you pummel the other guy and right. beat him bloody senseless, yep. you've won the battle. Right. We won the battle. And, and at the same time, we lost the strategic war because of how we reacted. We being, um, I, I mean, I, we had a general in charge of us, been there, General Westmoreland, who, who honestly I think was a little bit daffy, but mm-hmm. uh, he had this vision that he was going to beat the North Vietnamese way out in the hills where they were irrelevant. And and he thought the entire Tet Offensive was a diversion to get us away from a, a, a combat base called Khe San that he wanted to make like D.M.B. and Foo, the final fight. I mean, the man, the man had no comprehension of reality, and yet he was the forced star charge of all of us. It was bizarre. Yeah, yeah.
0: Understood. Recent uh, headlines were being made by the, the uh, relatively new Ken Burns-Lyn Novick uh, series, The Vietnam War. Uh, if there was any hope that that would end the controversies uh, about the war, uh, they failed. Um, it's renewed controversies of how we ought to remember that conflict. Uh, in the conclusion of your book, in reflecting on um, a well that was dug, uh, apparently by Marines in the village of B- uh, Binia, I think you said, uh, you, you describe the well as having a small inscription in commemoration of the Marines who built it. And I'd like to just read for our, for our, our listeners uh, your description of that well, Uh, About about the well, you write this. Uh, W. H. Auden once wrote, Teach the free man to praise. For that freedom, America has generally praised the generation of World War II. But of their Vietnam progeny, of those who return to jeers rather than parades, the press has projected the face filled with fear, unworthy of praise. It is left to others in unlikely places to trace calloused hands over rough cement and to remember the faces which were stalwart, the village remembers. How did America respond to the Vietnam generation then? How are we responding
1: now? Has there been a change and improvement? The, my generation has fought in Vietnam, and I think this spilled out in the Ken Burns video treatment we were pissed then and we're pissed now. Mm-hmm. Um, and Burns just stirred the embers again. Uh, the The notion that Burns left you with was this war could never have been won from start to finish and right. it was a folly. Right. That was a lot of baloney. Right. You can always win any war. The question is whether you have the guts to win it. And if you don't have the guts to win it, don't get into the damn war. Right. Look, the, the, you know, the, the, Burns gave equal... Credit to the students who didn't want to go who rioted in the streets baloney they, mm-hmm. they just didn't want to serve their country they, they're and They became if you will the heroes well to this day people my age We're damn careful at, at parties, parties etc. because those who Were vehemently opposed if we're in the same room. We know on both sides. Just don't bring it up. Mm-hmm because neither of us has changed his mind. Those of us who fought um, believed that we were doing the noble and the right thing. Um, the South Vietnamese were good, good people. Okay. Uh, and, and we we turned our backs on them. We just cut the, cut the aid. We cut the bombing and we let Russia and China help North Vietnam to win. Um, that wasn't right. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, You're not going to change the minds of people like me about what happened. That's right. And um, I think Novak did a a great disservice in saying the war could never have been won because that's how he presented everything, and that was a lot of baloney. And and that's why he had a huge backlash Mm -hmm. from the veterans who had fought. That's right. None of us liked what he did. None of us.
0: No, no, agreed. So just uh, to conclude, we've got this. We've got a, a gap between those who serve and those who don't. Right. We've got a media that tells tells it like they want to tell it. So for the average guy, how on earth do I know the truth about what might be happening in Southeast Asia or in Iraq or in Afghanistan? How can we stay informed? How can we uh, know what's going
1: on? Well, it, it, big difference. I, okay. I do believe that our reporters today are much more truthful than they were in Vietnam. Okay. Like our reporters, with the, I mean, they, they all hate Trump. That's, mm-hmm. that's a given, okay? <laughs> right, but. Right. But it was very smart of the military to say, we're not mm. going to allow people to do what they did in Vietnam. In Vietnam, we allowed the press to get on any helicopter they wanted at any time, fly into any battle for one day, get on the helicopter that night and fly, fly back to Saigon to have a drink. Okay. Now what we say is, you have to be embedded with the unit and stay with the unit. So you get to know them as human beings, they get to know you, and that's made a vast difference. No, that's fantastic. Okay, it's incredibly helpful.
0: Bing, you're being called away. Thank you for your time, thank you for your service, and for your, your writings.